We live in a world in which it's very much taken for granted that hatred is learned. The assumption behind that is that we are people who are born either innocent or neutral, and then through various ways in the world, outside of us, we learn to hate. So if we could just remove the prejudice and the bias that exists in this world, this world would advance and become a much better place. Nelson Mandela very famously said, and it's accepted as wisdom, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin, background, or religion. People must learn to hate. Is that true? There's a popular t-shirt that very boldly says, no hate, just love. Now, I think the irony about that t-shirt is that this world that is so against hate constantly hates. France, the war in Russia and Ukraine, look at your own heart. When people think about Jesus, many people, even Christians, easily say, Jesus was all about love. But did you know that Jesus taught very clearly about hate? The world's hate. Hate that would just come naturally to the world against him, against his disciples. And Jesus meant for anyone who would follow him as a disciple to know it. This, the world's hate, is what we'll be considering together this morning. Happy Sunday. We'll be doing this from John 15, and we'll be in verses 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. That's the New Testament. Book of John, the big number is the chapter number, small numbers are the verse numbers. Here's the main point that Jesus is making to his disciples that I want you to get. This world will hate you, but I, Jesus, have given you all you need to be faithful. This world will hate you, but Jesus, I have given you all that you need to be faithful. So very simply, our first point that we'll see is this, the world will hate you. And that's verses 18 through 25. The world will hate you. Verses 18 through 25. Let's look at that now, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Just before this passage, Jesus has been teaching about the love that must characterize the inside of the community of disciples. And now Jesus is teaching something different. He's teaching his disciples about the hostility and the hate that will be on the outside from the world. This world that Jesus came into to save opposes Jesus. And Jesus is very clear. This world hates him, and this world hates his disciples. Now, when we come to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has purposely hidden himself away from the world in order to prepare his disciples for his suffering and the coming hatred of the world. Now he is preparing them for all that they will suffer when he departs from the world. And it's clear this is not a pretty picture. Following Jesus, Jesus says, will not lead to fame and glory, but hatred, persecution. Now, something that's true across all of our cultures and backgrounds and nations is that cities, especially small towns, celebrate their own when you make it big in this world. Have any of you heard of Nikola Jokic? Just a few. He's from the small town of Sombor, Serbia, population 40,000. Grew up in a two-bedroom apartment with his two brothers, his parents, and his grandmother. And at a young age, he fell in love with basketball. And he got better and better, and he ultimately made it to the NBA in the United States. And he didn't just make it. He just led his team to the NBA championship. And he was named the most valuable player. And I promise you, when he, gets, when he goes home, he gets a hero's welcome. Nothing wrong at all with hometown pride. But Jesus wants his disciples to understand from the start, there will be no hometown parade for you. There will be no hero's welcome. The town won't put up a, a billboard celebrating you as their famous son or daughter that is now following Jesus. In fact, Jesus says you can expect the opposite because the world loves its own. But when Jesus calls a disciple, that disciple, verse 19, is no longer of the world, but is chosen out of the world. Hate, not love, is the expectation. 
What does Jesus teach us about the world? Well, in John's gospel, the world is the organized system of rebellion against God. How does the world do this? It doesn't always look hateful. Well, the world builds cultures and cities and civilizations that reinforces its own idolatry. So whole cities, cultures built in some way on the idea that righteousness can be achieved apart from Christ crucified, raised, and ascended. Whole societies built on the idea that there is righteousness in us, that there is some righteousness we can do to contribute to salvation, that there's enough that we can do such that one day we can say to God, you owe me. I've earned it. So because of this, this world hates any suggestion that its righteousness bank account is bankrupt, empty. Now, this takes different forms in different cultures. But since the beginning, for all this world cannot do, it is brilliant at organizing itself against the good God who's created it. What happened immediately after the fall? Cain, who lived by sight, killed his brother Abel, who lived by faith. And did anyone have to teach this hate to Cain? Ultimately, the whole world, instead of scattering as God had commanded to take dominion, stayed in one place, conspired together to build a tower that would reach the heavens. It was an attempt to build a world without God, apart from God. And what does God do? He came down to judge the world in its rebellion. And so God, beginning from that point, beginning with Abraham, began to call his people out of the world for the sake of the salvation of the world. Like Abel and Noah, Abraham was opposed for his faith by the world. And so would all of those who would come after him. So from the beginning, since sin entered the world, this world has organized itself against God and against God's people. Sin has called the world to hate the God it should love. So don't believe this lie that you can respect Jesus, but not submit to Jesus. You either love or you hate Jesus. And it's when God's own son, Jesus, came into the world that this reached its high point. The world didn't just then reject one of God's people, but God's one and only son. And yet, what did the son do in this world that hated him? He lived and died for the world, crucified and was raised. Remarkably, to the world that hated him, Jesus came to judge, not to save, I'm sorry, not to judge the very beginning of this sermon, I want you to see what love in a world of hate looks like. God's own son came to save those who hate him. So believe on God's son. Trust him. Come out of the world and come to the son. And yet, even as Jesus calls you to repentance and faith, he's very clear that to side with him will mean opposition from the world. 
settle with this fact now. To follow Jesus, the world will hate you. No exceptions. This is a strange world. And David Wells said this well, it's a world in which sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. What are you expecting from this world? I think one of the temptations for Christians can be to have this dual desire. You want to follow Jesus and you want some, at least, respect from the world. Now, Jesus never called us to make fools of ourselves. But we are to understand this, that the cross of Jesus Christ will always, until Jesus comes again, be foolish. It will be despised by this world. I wonder if you would be honest with yourself about ways that worldliness has crept into your heart. Too too often Christians think about worldliness in ways that really are away from the heart. If we can just get the externals right, if we can just dress in this way or not dress in that way, we can protect ourselves or our kids from the world. If we can shelter ourselves, we'll protect ourselves from the world. But worldliness is not out there. It's in here, in the heart. Worldliness is loving this fallen world, its values, its aims, its priorities over and against God. Worldliness is the exaltation of yourself over and against God who's made us and we're made to know and enjoy. You can shelter yourself from everything in this world and still be exalting yourself with a pharisaical pride because of how unlike the world you think you are. In what ways has this pride started to creep into your your heart? In what ways is the world pulling you this morning? Be careful that you have the same expectations and sober assessment of this world as Jesus, who makes clear the world is not content just to sit on its hate. It will act on it through persecution. Verse 20, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours? He means by that that some did obey him. Some kept his word, and so some will obey or keep the word of the disciples as it's proclaimed and ultimately in Scripture. Again, Jesus never separates himself from his word. And he is preparing his disciples to discern who is of and who is not of the world based on what? What they do with his word. All of it. But his emphasis here is the world's persecution. Now, what's interesting is persecution is the expectation. Jesus, in his ministry, has divided the world. His word divides. It's doing that right now. This persecution comes in different forms. Yes, physical persecution, but also social alienation, employment persecution, 
Uh, this world is creative in the ways that it takes out its hatred of the exclusivity of Christ against Christ and his disciples. We should never minimize any persecution. But we should be honest about the fact that there are many Christians, some of you, who have or do live with the fear of the raised fist, while quite a number of other Christians live their lives with the fear of the rejection of the raised eye. Embarrassment. Whatever form of persecution the Lord may call you to, what you need as you face that fear is greater fear, greater love of God. This is the antidote to fear of man. So we defeat our man-fearing by growing in our God-revering. We defeat our man-fearing by growing in our God-revering. It is so striking to me that Jesus, who's building a kingdom, bringing in a kingdom, does not hide the cost of following him. He's so honest. He's not trying to appease his disciples or pull the bait and switch. And I wonder if we're this honest with ourselves, with others. Are we this clear when we share the gospel with someone about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? There's one pastor I know that when he evangelizes, he he makes clear three realities about the gospel. First, coming to Jesus, the decision is costly. So consider it carefully. Decision is urgent, so make it soon. And the decision is worth it, so make it. It's costly and worth it and urgent to follow Jesus. And when you follow him, you're getting on the road that he walked, but it's worth it. So come follow him and keep following him. Don't get off the road. And remember, verse 21, the world's rejection, persecution is not ultimately because they hate us, but because this world hates Jesus. These things they will do on account of my name because they do not know who sent me. Jesus has been teaching about how he relates to the Father and the Father relates to him, but the world knows nothing of this. And so when the world opposes the church, what it's ultimately opposing is the church's Lord. His authority conflicts with the world's authority. His will with this world's desires, his righteousness with this world's rags. How do we love this world that hates our Lord? As God so loved the world, by witnessing to Jesus in this world, by bearing witness to his son. We're to be those who are in this world, who have no expectations of this world. We're like Abraham, like God's people who've been called out of it. We're these strange creatures for trusting Christ who are to live and love this world as God has, but who understand deeply that our home is in another world. We love this world best when we don't love this world first. That's how we love this world best. Henry Morrison and his wife were 
missionaries in Africa in the 18th and the 19th century. They had been there many years, and they were returning to the United States. They had health problems. They were uncertain about their future. Uh, They left there defeated and discouraged and afraid. And it turned out as, as they were, at that point, boarding a ship to go home, President Teddy Roosevelt was on the same ship, and it caused a great commotion that the President of the United States was on this ship. He was returning from a hunting expedition. And the missionary, Henry, commented to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we, who have given our lives and service to the Lord all these years, come back and not receive any fanfare, any attention? This man's done nothing more than go on a hunting trip, and he's the center of all attention. Of course, when they arrived in the United States, there was a band waiting for the president. The mayor issued a proclamation. Missionary was so discouraged. Isn't this not fair? He told his wife. Why why have we not received any adulation or attention for what we've done? How could this be fair of, of God? His wife said to him, honey, why don't you tell that to the Lord? A little bit later, Henry was smiling. And his wife said, you look different. What happened? He said, I told the Lord how bitter I was. that The president received this great homecoming and no one greeted us when we returned home. He said, then it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, you are not home yet. Friends, no matter where we live in this world, we will never be home. We're not looking for our reward now. We wait for it then when the king comes with his kingdom. So whether you're in a foreign country or your your home country, this world, until Jesus returns, will be fundamentally opposed to Jesus. I mean, this world could very possibly celebrate conservative values But that's not the same thing as rejoicing in the cross of Jesus Christ. This world that persecuted Jesus will persecute his disciples, will ignore his disciples, will be unconcerned for his disciples. But Jesus says this world will be found guilty and without excuse. Verses 22 and 24. Verse 22, Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. To hate Jesus, verse 23, is to hate the father. What is Jesus not teaching here? He's not saying if he had not come, the world would not be guilty of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin entered the world at the fall. He is saying that he has spoken, verse 22, and done unique works, verse 24. He is the supreme and the clearest revelation of the Father. And the world rejected him. That brings a particular blame to the world. Even in Jesus' own day, But one of the things that scripture clearly teaches is the greater the revelation, the greater the stewardship. So in Jesus' days, the world 
was hearing and seeing his teaching and his signs, God's own son. And their rejection of Jesus would render them even more guilty than those who had not received such revelation. Now, tracing that out, it's also why when we sit under sermons and teaching, it's a stewardship. God's word rightly taught and proclaimed never goes forward empty. This isn't a useless exercise. Many people think that they sit there and they're the ones standing in judgment. They're the ones making the assessment when it's God's word that's always judging, always assessing us. Be careful. God's word always stands in authority over us. Be careful that you're stewarding the privilege well. This world in all of its hatred and blindness has rejected the supreme revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and so it is without excuse. And yet what is remarkable that this world that will hate and then persecute, be found guilty, will not stop God's salvation plan. That's what Jesus is teaching in verse 25. He says in their law, why? Because even the Jews recognize this is our scriptures. And in both Psalm 35, which Micah read, and Psalm 69, King David writes of the world's hatred of him, the righteous king, and they did so without cause. And if the world hated God's anointed king, King David, how much more King Jesus, God's ultimate anointed king, God's anointed Messiah. Jesus sees in his life the fulfillment of this pattern. But notice the hope of this statement. The hatred of the world without cause doesn't stop God's salvation plan. It fulfills it. The hatred, even the persecution of the world against the church should not discourage us or cause fear. Jesus is telling this to us ahead of time so that we not only won't be surprised, but confident that even the hatred and fury of the world will not stop God in his work to save Jesus means for his disciples to face the hatred of the world with hope. Because where was the hatred and persecution of the world carried out in its fullness? On the cross. And it was on the cross that God's great plan of redemption wasn't just furthered, it was accomplished. What the world means for evil, God really does mean for good. This is our God. This is who our God has been since the beginning. And our God does not and will not change. The world will hate you. But we've seen just how weak the world is in its purposes on the cross. The world will hate you. But number two, the spirit will help you. The Spirit will help you. We'll see that in verses 26 through chapter 16, verse 4. The Spirit will help you. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things uh, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus has described very dark realities, hatred and persecution and rejection, rejection of the Son, the Father. Now, what would you think that Jesus would tell and promise his disciples after describing this kind of opposition that is coming? You think he would promise them an army, weapons, the likes of which the world has not seen. And yet in the face of the world's hostility, Jesus promises the helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. He's already made this promise. Back in chapter 14, the spirit brings the risen Christ to God's people. And notice that Jesus is teaching here that he will send the spirit from the father. John is very careful with his language. Verse 26, he proceeds from the father and sent as well by the son. Do you remember why John wrote this gospel? To reveal, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, son of God, so that by believing you might find life in his name. We learn in this gospel that Jesus was sent out, went out from the father into the world. We learn about the uniqueness of Jesus and his mission to the world. And here, John, who could not have a higher view of Jesus than he does have, is using the same language about the Spirit. Sent by the Father, proceeds from the Son. Just as John has revealed the unique mission of the Son, he is revealing the unique mission of the Spirit. And he's teaching that the spirit will in specific ways replace the mission of the incarnate son and so should be understood to be equally one of the persons of the Godhead. The unique mission of Jesus to the world secures the way for the unique mission of the spirit to the world. And we'll see more about that next week. The spirit coming in power is a new stage, a new era in God's plan of redemption. Now, notice what Jesus is emphasizing here about the Spirit. Verse 26, the Spirit is a Spirit of truth. The Spirit testifies to and illumines the truth about Jesus. The Spirit will bear witness about me. And what has Jesus already taught his disciples? He has said, He is the fullest revelation of the Father to the world. And the world rejected him and hates him because what the world believes is false. And so what is Jesus committing to giving to his disciples? The Spirit, who verse 26 bears witness to the truth. Remember, the Spirit always bears witness to and puts the spotlight on the Son. Not the disciple, not the event. If you're with someone or at an event 
where Christ is not being exalted and treasured, it's not a work of the spirit. No matter how much energy or things you see happening, it's not a work of the spirit. And verse 27, it's not just the spirit who will bear witness, but also the disciples who will bear witness because they've been with Jesus from the beginning. So he's ending his own unique mission to the world. And Jesus who's teaching his disciples who've seen and heard everything from the beginning that this is the way it will always be. In the face of the world's persecution, Jesus is not concerned that his disciples have the most powerful weapons in the world. He is concerned that his disciples have his spirit who will ensure their most powerful witness to the world. So what is success for a disciple of Jesus? It's not physical war. It's spiritual war waged through Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? Humility, suffering, bold and truthful witness bearing to the gospel, living by faith. Do you see this continuity between the mission of Jesus and the mission of the spirit? By Jesus's words and works, he bore witness about himself to the world. By the spirit's words, ultimately in scripture and work, convincing and convicting the world about the truth of Jesus, the spirit comes to bear witness about the son as well. So what is the faithful witness to which Jesus' disciples, the church is called to make the truth about Jesus known to the world? If we don't do it, no other organization will. To display the truth, to display its power in a new community formed in the church of love. The church called out from the world bears witness to the power and the life and the truthfulness of Jesus. And the spirit empowers the church to this end. So the world divided over Jesus in his day, the world continues to to divide in our day. And yet the witness of Jesus hung up on a cross was not in vain. And by the Spirit, neither will his disciples' witness be in vain. So we regularly and rightly, and so many of you regularly and rightly, pray that your witness will be used to the great end of salvation. It's right to pray that. We rejoice for those who come out of the world to faith in Jesus but the risen Christ will not be mocked and we must trust him when there seems to be no response or worse, when there's opposition, that faithful witness can be used for judgment. Do not think that what you see is the sum total of all there is. Labor faithfully knowing Jesus did not and will not fail in his mission. And the spirit is not failing in his mission. When the ground is hard, when it seems there's opposition to the truth everywhere, in Jesus's economy, this is not the deviation from the plan. This mysteriously is the plan. And then realize that by clearly teaching us that the spirit does empower faithful witness, that this can give us a settled confidence 
about what success in ministry looks like. Success is faithfulness to proclaiming Jesus, faithfully proclaiming him clearly. So as I think about you all, so many of you, that is the goal of language acquisition and cultural acquisition, which praise God, a number of you have done and do. It's to get to the point, isn't it, where you can make the truth clearly known. That's the goal of contextualization, not comfort, clarity. To ensure that the offense is not with anything peripheral, but with the gospel, that it's clearly heard. Should we evaluate our work? Should we evaluate our witness? Yes. Should we assess if we're being lazy? Yes. And yet, in all of our work, we are dependent upon the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit to bear lasting fruit. The Spirit has come powerfully help us with our witness and also our perseverance. Beginning there in chapter 16, Jesus gives more clarity about what the hostility of the world will specifically look like. Verse two, they will put you out of the synagogues. That's obviously the Jewish disciples. Now, the irony, of course, is that the Jewish leaders consider the disciples to be the apostates who've left the faith when they're the ones who truly hold to and are declaring the faith. And even more, they're going to be killed. Jesus hides nothing. And notice this this wicked irony that the one who kills them thinks he's offering service to God. Was that not the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus? Was that not Saul who becomes Paul? It is a sign of the sin and the wickedness at the root of this world that human beings made in God's image would, for one, kill any other image bearer, two, kill another image bearer because of their belief in Jesus and think that's a service to God. The irony is, it's the Christian who dies in faith who is offered up to God the true offering. And yet again, notice how different the teaching of Jesus is from what we would expect. Look at verse one. He teaches, he has said all these things. Why? Not to keep his disciples from death, but from falling away. Jesus teaches that death is not the worst thing that can happen to the Christian. Falling away is not persevering, simply walking away, proving you were just a professor not a possessor of the faith. So the spirit is not just sent for witness, but also perseverance in a hostile world. The servant is not greater than the master. If the master witnessed faithfully unto death, so too must the servant. And yet, if we're honest, most Christians will never be called to witness unto death. But every Christian is called to die to this world and its glories, to the flesh and its passions and to live by the Spirit, faithfully bearing witness. Because for the Christian, it is not death to die. The old hymn captures this so well. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, And wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. Oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. 
Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Jesus gives the spirit to protect us from the greatest threat, which is not death, but unbelief. Simply falling away. Whether for you that comes through apathy, you're not concerned or loving this world or just slowly growing faithless. So great is the love of the Father and the Son. They not only save us by the Spirit, but keep us by the Spirit. Jesus makes clear here, verse three, this world that has not known the Father, the Son, is on a collision course with those who do. And yet Jesus clearly told his disciples these things ahead of time. Why? Not to make them, not to make us afraid, but to make us confident. When these dark events come to remember with the help of the spirit who will bring his words to our mind, that Jesus reigns over every one of them. I love the idea of a world in which there's no hate, only love. But I am convinced that we will only know that world when Jesus comes again by his power and he brings it. Until then, Jesus teaches his disciples about the hatred of the world. Not that we who are his disciples will hate the world in return, but will faithfully, joyfully live and bear witness. We have his words. We have his spirit. We have everything we need for faithful witness, faithful life. And if the Lord calls you, even faithful death. Because for you as a Christian, it is not death to die.